The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. Today's episode is episode number 208. We have completed the end of our fourth year with this podcast episode, and I would just like to thank you so much for listening. You know, when a person is suffering from addiction to drugs and or alcohol, there are lots of different treatment choices available, and it can be overwhelming. And oftentimes there's a revolving door. Our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, is a residential treatment facility, very exclusive in Ojai, California, and they address the physical, mental, and spiritual aspects of addiction. They have a drug-free, holistic, evidence-based, step-by-step program that is designed to free those trapped by addiction. If you're tired of that revolving door for yourself or for your loved ones, call 1-866-231-5924. Today, we have an interview with a husband and wife team, Jeannie and Marcus Marshall. They are co-founders of Keys to Recovery Newspaper Incorporated. They both have their own background of addiction. They are both in recovery, and now they're giving back through their newspaper, which is proving to be a lifeline for a lot of people. So without further ado, let's talk to Jeannie and Marcus Marshall. So Jeannie and Marcus Marshall, I want to thank you both for being willing to share your stories on the podcast. You know, not everybody's willing to do that. So I appreciate it when people do. So thank you. Thank you. So Marcus, I apologize, but I believe in ladies first. So Jeannie, (laughs) if you could um, tell, how did you get started with drugs? Give us your drug history. Okay. Well, I started very early. I don't remember the exact date, the time, the drug. I had two older brothers that were um, using and dealing drugs. So it was just kind of natural. And I grew up in the projects. So that's, that was just the norm. Everybody drank and everybody used. That doesn't mean everybody was an addict, but you know, or an alcoholic, but it was very available and very normal. Nobody looked down on it. So as early as I can remember, I was using, I think that, um, I think when I really started it affecting my life, I was probably 12 or 13. And that was, I, I liked anything that would take me out of myself completely, any downers. I, and Back in the 70s, there was a big time when uh, PCP was available and uh, we, you know, we used, I used PCP so much that it didn't affect me. It made me normal. You know, when I would, I would just use a little bit, I'd get normal, but I would have these, I call them gray outs because it, I would believe that it was a dream, you know? So when you think you're dreaming, you do things that you wouldn't normally do. And I believe that that's why a lot of people got really crazy on angel dust PCP, but that was my drug of choice. I also like the two and alls and the quaaludes, things that don't even exist anymore. <laughs> right. You know, and I found out early if I use like some, a little bit of alcohol with 
the pills. I would get a much better high for a very cheap price. And I was so young, you know, I think uh, the first thing, like when I, I, getting drugs was actually easier because like I said, my brothers were dealing drugs and alcohol was actually harder for me to get. That's when you had to stand in front of the liquor store and beg people to go in and buy it for you. Right. Or, you know, and people would ask me, what was your favorite drink? I said, whatever was closest to the door because I would grab it and run. It was usually like cheap vodka. So, you know, I wasn't, um, you know, I just used everything that I could get my hands on. And what I wanted to do was stop the feelings. Right. And I didn't know that at the time. I thought I was just being cool. And I was just, you know, doing something I wanted to do. Everybody that I was associated with also used drugs and alcohol. Um, there was, we lived in Pacoima, which was at that time, predominantly black neighborhood. And my nickname was the white girl, <laughs> not white girl, but the white girl, you know, and <laughs> the junior high and, you know, and as much, you know, I loved the attention of being totally different, but I also didn't know what to do with all that attention. Like I did everything to get everyone's attention. It was like, look at me, look at me, look at me. And then everyone's looking at me. I'm like, ah, what are they? Stop it. You know, <laughs> don't, but yeah, I would uh, give, and I was very violent. And I think that was a lot of fear. Um, I was very, very quick to, uh, to fight people. You know, I was very quick to be um, physical. Um, but, you know, so I just, that, that was my experience young. You know, I got sober the first time when I was 18. So I burned fast, you know. Jeannie, do you think, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but do you think that, you know, you, you getting violent, do you think that some of that might have been attributed to drug use? It was, but it was also the environment, you know, everybody I knew fought my brothers. Actually, it was funny because the, um, the local police station, uh, Foothill division, uh, they were doing like this outreach for, you know, troubled youths. Right. <laughs> so they got the boys together and they taught them how to box and then they would box the different divisions and we would go around and it did divert us. It did keep them off the streets a little bit, but it wasn't something that they went into a hundred percent, but it was a great effort on the, on the police departments, mm-hmm. but you know, how, but also, so I learned how to fight, you know, and I remember my younger brother, he would be like, you know, don't scratch, don't slap, punch people, you know? So I kind of grew up. Don't like, fight like a girl, Jeannie. Exactly. <laughs> if you're going to fight, fight to win, yeah. you know? So, um, you know, that was, I, and plus I had a lot of anger that I didn't know how to deal with. You know what? Growing up, we never talked about feelings. Nobody ever asked me, how do you feel? Never heard that. So when I got sober and people were like, how do you feel? I'm like, I didn't even know what a feeling was. I remember my sponsor, I, she goes, well, what are you feeling right now? Maybe make a sound. I was like, mm-hmm. she goes, <laughs> right. And she was like, okay, let's start with, Ugh. you know, that we'll start with that because, you know, in, in the environment that I grew up in and Marcus also grew up in Pacoima, you know, um, there wasn't, we didn't sit around and share feelings. Nobody did, right? you know, but you also, you know, it's like if your cousin or your uncle or your dad wasn't there or in prison, there was no shame to that. So, you know, there was, you know, benefits of growing up in an environment like that. But then, you know, <clears throat> I didn't have a real feeling or process a real feeling until I got sober and in wow. therapy. And you said that you, the first time you got sober, you said, was it 18? Right. Right before I got sober, I had a <clears throat> intentional it wasn't suicide attempt. Um, 
I don't know, a lot of people that are drug addicts might understand or might relate. I just wanted some attention. You know what I mean? My boyfriend was a heroin addict and he was not paying enough attention to me. And he went to the store and I had like 20 tunnels, which is a fatal overdose. And I thought, well, I'll take them. I'll tell him what he did, what I did when he gets back, he'll walk in and he'll realize he'll rush me to the hospital for the hundredth time. Right. And they'll pump my stomach and he'll realize he almost lost me and that he loves me and we'll live happily ever after. Well, <clears throat> good, plan, Jeannie, good plan, Jeannie. Good plan. It was like, it, it's not really good up in my head, but you know, the afternoon special, you know, yeah. but what happened is he stayed away longer than I thought he was going to. And so the pills kicked in and I overdosed. And when he came in, <clears throat> he found me on the ground in my own vomit, which he, found me like that a lot. So he wasn't concerned. He was kind of disgusted and left. And thank goodness I had vomited some of that, or I believe that I would have died. You know, what happened was that I had such a severe overdose. And by the time, I'm sorry, my mom came looking for me and because, you know, I was missing and she came looking for me. I was about 17 and she had heard through the grapevine that I was staying at this one place. She came over and she put me in the tub. But by the time she found me, the drugs were already in. She took me to the hospital. I said, there's nothing we can do. It's too late. So basically I was alive, but I had some pretty severe brain damage, which I believe was the, was God stepping into my life and saying, okay, honey, enough, enough. Because at that point, my, I was just, I couldn't, I mean, I could think, but I wasn't very rational. I couldn't concentrate. I was slurring. I was, you know, I was stumbling around. I was stuttering and I, uh, but I knew what was going on around me. I was just having some motor skill problems, (laughs) but I believe that at that moment, my world was split wide open. You know, that was my divine intervention where God came in and just said, okay, Now you're going to hear it. Now you're low enough right now. And what happened is a girlfriend of mine called and she said, "Um, I'm going to, I have to go to this meeting or my mom's going to kick me out of the house. And I said, okay. And she goes, you know, I'll give you a ride. We'll eat. But, and I'm like, okay, I'll go. And then she said, it's, you know, I go, well, what kind of me? She goes, well, there's a lot of sober people. And I was like, I don't think, you know, it's like, I'm on the verge of death, but yeah, I don't want to be around. sober Boring. Right. (laughs) And she said, there's a lot of good looking guys there. And I thought, hmm, okay. So for you, I'm going to do this for you. So I went and then plus my head is thinking, you know, sober guys are not drinking. They're not using drugs. They got to be sitting on a shitload of cash. Right. <laughs> but I, that's what I thought. <laughs> so I went to the meeting and I got to tell you that that I believe that I was open to anything at that moment. And when I walked into that meeting and those people, they just surrounded me with love. Mm-hmm. You know, they were, they, they were, they smelled good. They were shiny. They had all their teeth, you know, and the people that I was hanging out with, you know, including <laughs> myself, missing a few, you yeah. know, and yeah. um, these are all due to sobriety. <laughs> nice, pretty smile. But, um, you know, the thing is, is that for the first time in my life, I was open to the love that was being extended to me. And these people were all sober and they were really young. It was actually, it wasn't an AA meeting. It was a Palmer drug abuse 
um, program that had come from Texas and it was all younger people. And, you know, of course I also went to AA meetings, but that was my first meeting and they kind of like surrounded me and they had a newcomers meeting where anyone who was brand new, they took out and they told you about the 12 steps, about getting a big book, about getting a sponsor and what a sobriety date was and what sobriety was, you know, nothing, you know, no drugs, no alcohol, no this, no that, you know, no sleeping pills. No, right. you know, it's like, Oh, okay. <laughs> and so I remember just in that moment, just being struck sober, I was like, okay, where do I sign? What do I do? And I had no withdrawals. I had no withdrawal, which was crazy because I was using every day and I had that, you know, like I told you, you think of someone who's so disoriented that they would take 20 pills just to get their boyfriend's attention. You know right. what I mean? And um, so I was, you know, I was just kind of scooped up and moved by this. It was incredible. You know, I could, and they didn't want anything, you know, it's a, a little story. My who came to be my sponsor. She said, well, we're all going to go out to coffee afterwards. And, you know, we just talk and then I'm going to go to my house. And, and I said, that's great. I said, you know what? I'm straight. <laughs> and she said, so am I, honey. So am I. <laughs> because I wasn't used to anybody being so sweet to me for no reason at all, especially a woman. Why would she want to be so nice to me? There had to be a motive. And yet she was my first example of unconditional love in the program. Wow. That was absolutely that was my first day sober when I was 18. Wow. So. And you've been sober ever since, right? No. Oh, I got sober. I, you know, did a lot of stuff. I uh, got well, I uh, got married, had a baby, or I got pregnant, got married, had a baby, got a job working in Beverly Hills. And I thought <laughs> I'm doing good. Then uh, me and my husband split up. I had the baby. I was a single mom. Life was good. And I went to therapy. I got in touch with my inner child. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? This was a phase. I, who can be an addict and alcoholic at 18? That's not just, it's just not possible. I was just going through a phase. I had, I came from a dysfunctional family. When I first got sober, I couldn't even pronounce that word, right? <laughs> so I, I was with someone who, you know, we call a normie, someone who didn't have, you know, who wasn't an addict. And you know, he was like, baby, you're the most together woman I've ever met. <laughs> you don't need those meetings. And so I stopped going to my meetings and we had a party one night with, it was like a regular party, like adults have with just some beer and shrimp scampi. Prior to that, my parties had been backyards, kegs, you know, <laughs> nothing, you know, people running around naked. It was, you know, so this was like an adult regular party. And I drank and I smoked a little bit of pot. And the next day I woke up and I was okay. I was like, oh, I could do this, you know. Three and a half weeks later, I was in the bathroom shooting up reds. Oh. And he was on the outside door banging, saying, baby, I think you need to go back to your meetings. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so then I got sober again. It took about a year, but then I got sober again. Okay. Mostly because of my daughter. Yeah. And you said you've been sober 35 years, right? Uh, at the end of this month, on the 28th, it'll be 35 years sober. Well, you know, very well done. That's not easy. We've talked to enough former addicts that we know it's not easy. And, you know, every day you got to take a win that you are clean and sober. That's right. That's right. So, Marcus, I'm putting you on the spot now. Yes. I want to hear about <laughs> you. Tell me about your drug story, and then you all can circle back and tell me how you met and... 
right. didn't meet well, and, and I'm, met again. I'm, I'm part of in his story when he's using, and it makes me look bad, but oh. <laughs> if I chime in. <laughs> okay. okay Fair enough. No judgment. Well, <laughs> as Jeannie was saying, I was born in Bukwama as well. And I was born in 1960. And at that time, it was a lot of civil unrest. And of course, you know, racism and everything was very prevalent. I was, my mother is German and Jewish. My father was African-American and Indian. And uh, Pukwama was predominantly black at that time. So in our neighborhood, we were considered outcasts. The women didn't like my mother because she was a beautiful woman. And it was, they were thinking, contemplating that their husbands are probably gonna try to sneak over or whatever. My father was, they would call him her race traitor, call him my father race traitor, calling me and my siblings, you know, despicable, mistakes, all these things growing up I heard. But my mother was a very devout Christian. So she always told us that just love them no matter what. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. So their kids, unfortunately, was taught by the parents to not associate with us. So all through elementary, all the way up to the fifth grade, we were sort of segregated from them. And I was trying to be friends, but then when the kids got to a certain age, they realized that Marcus was not a bad guy, regardless of what moms and pops is telling me, I'm gonna still be friends. So I started acquiring friends about fifth, sixth grade. Um, in the seventh grade, I was trying to hurry and go to school because I was going to church very much at that time. And my friends that I considered friends at that time was across the street. And they were behind an abandoned church. And I knew what they were doing. They were smoking weed. I didn't want no parts of it. So I was trying to get by them. And they said, Marcus, come over here. <laughs> so, you know, because of peer pressure and all that, because I sort of came to that because I just wanted to fit in. I went back there and, you know, I let them talk me into it. And I, I smoked some weed. And this is in the seventh grade. I was 12 years old. And then in the eighth grade, I started drinking. And subsequently, I did that continually all the way to I got with Jeannie. I was 19 years old when Jeannie and I got together. That was in 1979. And we were both getting high, you know, drinking, but not, not very, very hard, but enough. And I turned to her one day, I said, look, sweetie, I'm studying to become a minister. And I, why don't we go ahead and stop getting high and drinking and let's get married. And she turned to me and she says, I love you, Marcus, but I don't want to be a minister's wife. <laughs> she says, I don't know what a minister's wife do, but I know what they don't do. <laughs> and I respected that because she was always honest and upfront with me. So I, you know, I told her, I, I definitely, I, I can understand where you're coming from. She ended up going to the Navy and I stumbled, I, I got, picked myself back up, but I never had what you will call clean time, being clean and sober. I started to really get into a cocaine okay. when I was in, I was about 24 years old. I started, never really liked it before. And then crack cocaine came out. And, you know, I, just to get someone off my, my case that was always hounding me for, for a couple months, I finally indulged in some and got hooked. You know, physiologically it was something that my body liked. Uh, about maybe within about eight months after that, I got caught in a sting operation over from the footio division and I got put in, in prison. Now, I'm going to I'm going to stop you Marcus. Did you get put in prison because you were using or because you were dealing? I was using. Okay. But what had happened is an individual came looking for some drugs 
I thought it was an individual who was just looking for drugs. And I, mm-hmm. I tried to steer him in the right direction to get some. Okay. I, and then, see, I've always been a person that shared. My mother always taught us to share. But I wish I, I didn't have that kind of thought, you know, thoughtfulness. I pulled in my pot, out my pocket because I had some free. I, you know, I had some that was personally mine and I offered to smoke it with him. He said no. He says, I need some of this because he's going through the grapevine or something like that. He's making up an excuse that he needed it for later. With, as soon as I said, he said, because I, I had it out of my hand, he says, I buy that for me for $10. And I, I reiterated, I said, no, man, you can, we can smoke it for free. Keep your money. He says, but I need it for later. As soon as I said, yes, I get grabbed from behind. I look and I see the windbreaker, the blue windbreaker, LAPD on it. So I, I know he takes off. I find out later he was an undercover cop. Didn't even know that. Entrapment at that time was no big deal because you know it was such an epidemic. It was so many atrocities happened because of crack cocaine. This was my first offense. Mm-hmm. He offered me six years for my first <laughs> offense. And it was $10 worth of crack cocaine. Right. It was a tenth of an eighth of a tenth of a gram. I refused it six years. Went to jury trial. They found me guilty within moments because now suddenly this officer said it was another officer that was behind the back seat that hurt the whole transaction. Mm. So I got two cops. You know that, but like I tell everybody, if I wasn't disobeying God, I wouldn't be dis- disobeying the laws of the land. So it's on me. It's on me. I shouldn't have been there to begin with. And I always tell him, I think God saved him. Mm. Yes, he did. <laughs> there you yes, go. He did. So I lost jury trial. And I was blessed because it was a commissioner, not a judge. And the commissioner said, Mr. Marshall, you have anything to say for yourself? I said, Your Honor, I said, look, I disobeyed the laws of the land and they're all based on God's laws. Whatever the court means fair, I wanted to accept it because I was wrong. And he said, I appreciate your attitude. I came back two weeks later for sentencing. He said, you know what, Mr. Marshall, because it's such a small amount of cocaine, I'm going to give you uh, three years. He said, because you learned in three years what you learned in six years. I said, absolutely. He said three years. The DA stood up. He was irate about that because he said, you know, we offered him six years. He refused it, took it to jury trial, wasted all the taxpayers' money, and you're giving them half of the original deal? <laughs> and the commissioner said, yes, absolutely. So I go to prison. While I look around the room, because I was engaged at that time, I looked around the room for my fiance at that time, be with my mother and my sister, and she wasn't there. <laughs> so about maybe 10 minutes later, they take me out of the um the uh, courtroom and in the hallway, they sit me down. She said, can I speak with my client? And he, he handcuffed me to a chair and she told me that her name was Gloria. They told me that Gloria was hit and killed by a car a few days prior oh. to me going in. So, you know, this was something that I wasn't, you know, I'm going to prison for the first time. I, I, that's the last thing I expected. And let me hit you with a little more bad news. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, and I think she was hit with by a drunk driver, right? Well, they, it was a hit and run. They never found out who it was. Oh. And she was under the influence. Yes, yes. It was a, she just came from a, a gathering of friends at the park. They were having a little um, what, an engagement party. And we lived within a walking distance from the park. She wanted to walk instead of taking a ride home. So I go to prison and, you know, and, it, and I get caught up in a few things coming out when I was released. But what it was, it's really interesting, too, because... I, I uh, have parole officers that would violate me immediately, immediately. And I asked them one time, because I would do long time stretches without you know, relapsing and going back to drugs and alcohol. And they told me one time, they said, look, the reason why we get so severe on your case is because you're an intelligent man. 
you have no excuse. These other individuals come through here, they have excuses. You don't. So we're going to get on your case each and every time. And they did. I see Gloria, I mean, not Gloria, I see Kathy. Um, you know, she, she's, I didn't know at the time that she was an alcoholic because she didn't look like it. She was very athletic. You know, she had her act together. I find out that she was um, an alcoholic. Okay. She was drinking, uh, I think it was like vodka or something like that. This was the second big love of his life. Yes. Okay. And this is, and this is, uh, this is in what, 1999, I think it was, 1998. This is the fiance and, that got killed? No, second no, oh, this is a different no, one. Is, okay. This is my girlfriend. I thought you were the I'm first sorry. love, Jeannie, so I'm losing track well, here. Well, I am. I'm the first okay. and I'm the last. Yeah. Okay. So there, there you go. Okay. So this <laughs> is, this is two after this Jeannie. Is okay. number two. Okay. Yes. All okay. right. And within about 30 days of us getting together, we found out that she had cirrhosis of the lip. And my brother is a doctor. He's been a doctor for 30 years. And he told me, he told me specifically what it was because she had a large distension in her abdomen area, abdominal area. And he told me that sounds like cirrhosis. And sure enough, it was. She was given three years if she doesn't get a, a liver transplant. But let me tell you, Marcus, who he is. They had only been dating for about a month and he stayed with her through this horrifying disease wow. until the day she died five years later. Wow. Yeah, she's a, she's a, That's my uh, husband. My husband is like a man of God, but he is a good man. And he won't tell you that, but can you imagine dating? Most people, you date someone for a month and you're like, you know, this is too much. Cirrhosis is a, it was a painful, yeah, horrifying horrible. death. Yeah, I'm know? sure. I'm sure. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727 314 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narcanon Ojai, visit their website at narcanonojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. He stayed, he took care of her, he supported her, and, you know. She was bedridden the last four and a half years of her life. Wow. But she got clean and sober. We got, we, I told her, I said, I stopped drinking alcohol if you do. And she did. She stopped for the last five years of her life. I was a knucklehead. <laughs> I sort of indulged about two months later. 
No, no. I waited. I waited two weeks before I start. I stopped after she died. No, no. I'm sorry. Oh. I started to. Uh, I I uh, stopped. I stopped smoking a lot of weed because I was doing that. But I stopped drinking about two weeks after she stopped. Okay. She didn't know. She thought I stopped drinking as well. And then two weeks later, I get I get arrested for um, well, they they said being under influence because I was driving a car. And I pulled into a gas station in my license plate. So when it stole my, my tag off of there. So it was like eight years <laughs> old as far as they're concerned. And the officer pulled me over and they found out I was drinking. I passed the test, but they took me into jail anyway. And I took a breathalyzer there and they found out that, yeah, I, I, I was barely at the, the cusp of being drunk. They kept me for about six hours. I was released. And when I was walking home, I said, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm done. And the very next day I quit for five years. Wow. And then when Jeannie and I got together, I was I had just started drinking about, I think, four years, five years. And my my house was party central. But uh-huh. let, let, let's back up because Kathy did, he stayed sober because he was trying to support her sobriety because she had cirrhosis. Right. So after she died, you know, he picked up a little bit after that. But during that time, you, he had smoked pot and stuff. So he wasn't clean and sober like we are now. Right. But enough to stay out of prison. He wasn't doing crack, you know. Yeah. So he was basically, you know, in his eyes, he was sober and he wasn't in prison anymore and he wasn't doing crack. So he was doing great, you know. I didn't drink for about almost a year after she passed away. Okay. And then when Jeannie and I got together. You know, so how did you guys get together to- again? I want to hear that story. How did you get together again? I had a... a um, my mother... And um, her best friend in Germany was neighbors. And her, mo- her, her best friend came out here to America from Germany. And then my mother followed suit about a year and a half later. And we all lived in the same home. It was a large home in Bukoima. And she had six, six kids. And my mother had two, my brother, Kinder, and myself. And then my little brother was born. But during that time, we became like a family. They were like, because you got to think about this. We were like the only mixed families in a large predominantly black community right so we have to band together as a matter of fact we had no one else and um what really was surprising is, is that Siegfried was like my older brother and Siegfried knew Jeannie I dated him when before I dated Marcus <laughs> okay. I was a lazy dater <laughs> okay you know he got a cousin okay <laughs> no. and I didn't know they were serious ever I just thought they were just good friends and you know I didn't really think they were boyfriend and girlfriend because I he would be. He, he was. A, he was. A, he was a man of of the world, no matter speaking. He was a very mature guy for his age, and he had a lot of friends, female friends. But Marcus and I dated as a result of him. So. Okay. Yes. Okay. And what he did, he had he had died, and when he died, I, I was calling around to see if I could speak with Jeannie. This was years left. later, like uh, in uh, what two thousand and. Yeah, he, Siegfried died in. Let's see. Like 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah, I think it was 2000, 2009 or 2010. 10 Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I was calling her to let her know because Zephyr, about not even a year before he died, he, he had her to call me. Okay. Right. So- I was talking to Zephyr and, you know, he was um, a little, I, he was reaching out to me, Zephyr, for help. And I was talking to him almost every day and all. Here, and he was gonna, you know, move, but he was 
he had his own struggles with addiction and he had ended up getting, uh, him and his stepfather struggled over a gun and the gun went off and killed him. Okay. So Marcus was trying to get in touch with me to tell me about secret. And that's how we kind of reconnected over his death, you know? And then, um, Marcus said to me, you know, I said, well, you know, I just, just hearing his voice again on the phone just brought up all these feelings, you know, and I had just ended my second marriage and in sobriety. And so me and Marcus met for coffee and, you know, it was like, it was like time stood still, you know, we fell back in love. And I just told him, I said, look, this is who I am. I'm sober. Cause he looked at me and goes, what's different about you? I go, I'm clean and sober. I've been, you know, because after Marcus, you know, when he proposed to me and uh, you know, I ran away, you know, skid marks. It was like, no, I don't want to be a minister's wife. I actually was struggling with my own addiction. And um, I tried to get sober through the Navy because I talked to my probation officer and he said, I said, can I get into the Navy? He's like, sure, let's try, you know? And, you know, for me, it was like one more man to take care of me, Uncle Sam, right? Mm, yeah. So, you know, he helped me get in the Navy and that didn't last long because turns out that uh, when I was in boot camp, I was pregnant oh, with boy. Marcus's baby. And I lost the baby when I got home, but you can't be, you know, a Navy person. And, you can't. and boot camp, they, you know, sent me home. And when I got home, I lost the baby. I never told Marcus until years later, I tried to make amends through my program. And, uh, but, you know, I was pregnant with his child when I went into the Navy, but, you know, so we kind of reconnected, we talked and, you know, and then within a few weeks we were, you know, basically back together. And I just told him, I said, look, you don't have to get sober, but this is what I do. Right. And the more I came around his place, the more I saw that he was, you know, his, his place was like party town. I mean, <laughs> but like the guys would come over after work and everybody would get drunk and they played dominoes. And, you know, and I told, you know, Marcus drank, I mean, he smoked a lot of pot. And so he said, well, I don't have to drink. And I said, well, of course not. You know, anybody can stay sober, but they're smoking <laughs> that kind of weed every day. And, um, but he did try to stay sober. And well, actually we met the first time after 33 years, it was January 15th. Okay. And my sobriety date is February 22nd, one month later. Okay. My sobriety date. And I've been, and I, and I never looked back. I didn't understand what 12 steps really was. So uh, about a week after I saw Jeannie for the first time, she said, you had to come check out one of my, one of the uh, groups. And it was called, um, well, this was upstairs. Oh yeah. But it's dropped, still- it was called Drop the Rock. And I went upstairs and I, you know, Drop the Rock is step six and seven. I didn't even know what one through five was. I'm going to step six and seven. And I was like, oh, I understand that. It's it's character defects. And I just replaced character defects with sinful nature. Uh, So it was easy for me to recognize and understand. And I said, okay, I can work with this. And then I started going to Radford Hall with her about a week after that. And I remember the very first time I said, these people are trying to tell the worst war stories. I'm just sitting here back at this door so I can leave. And that was, of course my addictive um, personality at that time. Third time I looked and I said, you know what, these individuals are the most honest individuals that I've ever came across. I said, here I am living a a fake facade with everybody, even my family, you know, my siblings, yet these people are being totally honest. I said, Mm. you know what, I'm gonna try this. And I told Jeannie February 21st, I said, you know what, I'm just gonna stop everything. She says, you don't have to stop. 
just slow down. I said, I don't understand what that means. I either mm-hmm. go 100 miles an hour yep. or I'm at a standstill. Stop or go, exactly. Woke up the next morning, February 22nd, and never looked back. Wow. Like and you said it'll be how many, how many years this February 22nd? How many years? He's coming up on nine. Nine. nine you know, that's it so was- well done. Jeannie, you with yours and, and Marcus, you with yours. It, I, I just know it's not easy. And I really, you know, I just want to validate you for being clean and sober because, you. you know, it's, it's just not easy. It's not easy for a lot of people, but especially when you've, you know, right. you've come through what you've come mm-hmm. through. So tell us about your newspaper and how that got started and what the purpose is and what you guys are doing. Well, okay. So, you know, we had a lot of family, um, get, you know, like Marcus's family's pretty, you know, my family is different than Marcus's. Mine is, my brother was in and out of jail for 30 years. Then his son um, was, came out of prison and stayed with us. Me and Marcus, when we were living together, he started going to um, college to get a degree in counseling for addiction studies. And while he was there, he had come across the newspapers because I had previously worked on a newspaper steps to recovery, uh, steps for recovery. And, um, he came across it and he looked at it and he said, this is incredible. What happened? And I said, well, my business partner, Jason Levin had died, you know, mm. me and him were working on it together. He died of natural, you know, well, he was sober, but cause he had used so much cocaine in his past, he had a heart condition. So when he died, I just lost, you know, the, the family wanted me to take over and run it, but I just, I couldn't, you know? So I just went back to corporate America and I just left it behind. It was too hard. I, you know, I still think about Jason every day. He was mm-hmm. an incredible man. Mm-hmm. And one of our first issues when we were doing editor's column, columns, I was running what he used to do, mm-hmm. what his editor columns from before. So, you know, to kind of pay tr- tribute to him. But Marcus looked at the newspaper. He loved it. And he said, you know, we should do something like this. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of work, <laughs> you know. So, you know, one thing led to another. And, you know, we started this newspaper. And basically what it was is we wanted to be nonprofit. We conducted it. We had it printed in a way that there was no bindery. So there's no staple so that it can go into hospitals and institutions. And all of it, it it's full of columns you know at first it was real heavy alcohol and drugs but recovery from them not just you know the 12 steps which marcus and i got sober through aa but you know it's like uh, a lot of psychology you know religion a little bit of everything because not everybody gets sober the same way exactly you know and you know and so what we did we had all these incredible writers and then eventually we got like a food for thought which deals with eating disorders mm-hmm. you know we have a quit to win which deals with gambling um we have a love you know we have you know matters of the heart we have you know now we have uh, leslie gold who does uh, strides she you know she believes in the physical training and she has this incredible company but you know basically what we want to do is do all addictions and disorders, okay. trauma, PTSD, and, and our newspaper's nonprofit. We, you know, we're, the way we run it is, I mean, we have paid advertisements from treatment centers and from sober livings and from, you know, some regular, you know, handymen and uh, schools advertise. Anybody can advertise. We don't take advertisements from cigarette companies alcohol companies or you know drug companies right but you know that we survive on that and 
Every issue that we send out, whether we send a private subscription or we do like, you know, sometimes we send out 50, 100, it's all free. We send out everything for free because we want everybody to be able to read about recovery. And it also addresses people that are in recovery, how to sustain your recovery and the different things people do. And we have, you know, we used to have a, a social calendar where people could list dances and things like that. And it will come back. But right now we list all the different types of meetings that are available online, you know, all the different types. You know, that that's but, huge um, that you give a resource to people in recovery because it's so needed. Um, I don't know if you had listened to any of our earlier episodes, but we interviewed a gentleman named Duke Rumley, who has an organization called Sober AF Entertainment. And they just had a huge Super Bowl party on Sunday that was a completely sober party. And I think that some of those resources are important. And the fact that you guys, you know, but just in spite of that, whether the events are there or not, you guys offer you know, like a, a helpline to people. Do you know what I mean? And I think, right. I think that's huge. So your newspaper isn't online at all, right? It's just printed. Yes, it is. Oh, it is. We, okay. uh, no, we, um, our primary purpose was to have a printed copy, but Understood. yeah, it's online. We have a digital version where people can actually download and a lot of people don't want to download. So we also have created a version where they can just flip through the pages online. And where do they and, go you know, to see that? Version. They go to keys to recovery newspaper.com. Okay. That's keys, K E Y S T O, recovery newspaper.com. And we also have like a two page resource guide that lists all of the 800 numbers for, you know, suicide hotline, for, you know, AA, for, for everything. Food banks, Food banks you know, um, homeless shelters. But that's, you know, a lot of times when there's open meetings, the meeting people like it because they have a lot of homeless people that show up and it gives them a resource that they can say, call this number, go here, do that. But the two pages, I mean, it's two solid pages. It's great real estate. You know, it's, you know, a couple thousand dollars would have been of advertising that we give every month. And, you know, we're a nonprofit. Our primary purpose is to live with a purpose. You know what I mean? Right. To give it's a labor of love. I've never taken a paycheck. I have a full-time job that I do to, and Marcus is like the full, is the only sometimes paid employee, you know? <laughs> yep. And you know, it's like, we have a granddaughter that we're enjoying immensely. And, you know, we do, uh, you know, this is a labor of love. We just didn't know it would be 24 <laughs> seven. We were very blessed because we started out with 20,000 copies that we distribute throughout the United States. We only had two st- two states outside of Southern Northern California when we started. Now we're up to 37 states. And we have people as far as Istanbul, Africa, Amsterdam, China, asking for our newspapers, but we're nonprofit and we will grow up in a week trying to do that. Yeah, exactly. They they can go to the website. All they need is an internet. They go online, right? Yeah. And we have about 200,000 readers a month. That's awesome. So we've grown enormously. Yeah, and people love us. It's just, you know, it's... It's our way of getting what we have. And we write an editor's column. I do the top, he does the bottom. We talk mm-hmm. about our experience of, you know, our views and our experiences. And, you know, it's Marcus and I, we have, I believe, like a very blessed relationship with each other. You yes. know, being married, he's my best friend. He's my business partner. <laughs> he's my husband. And now we're grandparents together. I had a so daughter cool. in early sobriety. I told you about what yep. was it Marcus's daughter. Her dad 
had 20 years of sobriety. He relapsed and he's homeless. He's been on the streets for about 10 years. One of the women that I sponsor was actually able to get him into a homeless shelter recently. So we're really hoping that it stays. And it's difficult right now with COVID because as soon as someone in the shelter has, they put them all someplace else. But my daughter has basically grown up without a father. Mm. So with Marcus here, you know, she I had a second marriage and there was a stepfather, but Marcus has been the grandfather to my daughter's child that she never really had. She never really had a grandfather. Right. And so, you know, and Zoe, our little granddaughter loves, you know, it's just so beautiful how when you get sober and you, you know, are for me, success is about family. You know, yep. it's about love. It's about my mom was scared to death. Every day I would walk out of the house. Now she brags about me all over the place. Tells everybody <laughs> how wonderful I am, you know, that I'm her little angel, you know, and we live and breathe recovery. I sponsor about 20 women. I used to have a meeting every week in my house and Marcus would help me set it up and break it down. And now we do it on zoom until we can be, you know, in person together but you know it's like we live and breathe recovery and hope and god you know we believe that we're doing kingdom work that we're helping lead people away from the darkness of addiction into any type of recovery you know that's awesome well thank you both so much for being willing to be on the podcast and share your story i know that it's going to resonate with people who are listening And you've come so far and you're doing so well and giving back so much. So thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you you for having us and giving us a platform where we can maybe get a little more well-known our newspaper anyway. Thank your husband very much as well. (laughs) You know, every time we hear a story of addiction, there's always similarities and then there's always differences. And I like Jeannie and Marcus's stories because definitely there's a story there of hope that they got back together and now they have a grandchild and they're really giving back with their newspaper. Once again, it's keys to recoverynewspaper.com. And if you're looking for resources, you know, you can always check out their website. They said they have a a two-page document that lists all sorts of 800 numbers and resources. If um, you don't want to do that, you can always call Narconon Ojai at 866-231-5924. You know, it's an anonymous call when you call them. You don't have to give your name. You don't have to tell them whether you're addicted or someone you know is. Just give them a call. Just do something. Reach out. Get help. It's oftentimes the hardest thing to do is to just reach out. So please do me a favor and do it. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. For more information on Narconon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcononojai.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.